Friends, I'd like to welcome you to this week's edition of Bishop Sheen Presents, a program where we feature some of the wit and wisdom of the venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. For over 50 years, Archbishop Sheen captivated audiences on both radio and television. Millions tuned in each week to hear his messages of hope and encouragement. It is my sincerest hope that the reflections that you will hear today on this broadcast will truly touch your heart and in a way show you that your life is worth living. Hello, my dear friends, and welcome to this week's edition of Bishop Sheen Presents here on Radio Maria. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me for this opportunity to learn our faith together as we journey with Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Uh, he's been such a great teacher of the Catechism, and I've been sharing some of his 50 lessons with you over the last year or so. And, of course, uh, we're all growing together, and so this week we'll continue on that journey. Uh, this week's catechism lesson will be on the topic of holy orders. And uh, But before we get to that catechism lesson, we'll be entertained by Archbishop Sheen's wisdom and his wit. Uh, he gave a reflection uh, back in the 1950s on how to improve our minds. And I think we all could use a little bit of improvement in that area especially. So uh, without further ado, may I present the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen from his Life is Worth Living television series as he talks about how to improve our mind. Please enjoy. Friends, you probably have often heard the question that newspaper men and journalists often ask people. Namely, if you were shipwrecked on an island and could have only one book, which one would you choose? The best answer was given by G.K. Chesterton, who said he would like to have Thomas's practical guide to shipbuilding. <laughs> I heard of a man who had been reading so very much about cigarettes being a conditioning cause of cancer that he gave up reading. <laughs> John, that was a second late. <laughs> and there was a college boy who wrote home to his father and said, Dad, I'm going to save you a little money this year. You will not have to buy any more books for me. I've decided to take over last year's courses. <laughs> One day, some horsemen were crossing the desert, and they stopped at Anoises for a drink. And a voice out of nowhere spoke to them and said, Fill your pockets with pebbles. Tomorrow you will be sad and glad. They obeyed the voice, and they filled their pockets with pebbles, and the next morning when they awoke, put their hands in their pockets, they found that the pebbles had turned into diamonds and rubies and emeralds of the most precious kind. They were glad, but they were also sad. They were glad that they had turned into jewels, 
they were sad that they had not taken more. <laughs> and that's the way it is with education. We're very glad that we've had it. We're sad we didn't get more out of it. Did you know that there is a virtue called studiositas? In other words, studiousness. Uh, when we started to prepare this telecast, we went to Thomas Aquinas and read his treatise on studiousness. Now, studiousness, he said, is possible because the human mind is perfectible. Uh, in lower creation, there's not much perfection possible. For example, H2O can only take on three forms. It can be water, ice, and steam. Plants have greater variety, greater adaptability to temperature, to seasons, and the like. And animals have still more capacity for perfection due to their ability to move from place to place. Man has the greatest of all. Man, on account of his spiritual capacities of intellect and will, is able to get the whole universe into his own head. He therefore, is a kind of a little world, a microcosmos. And you, even to grace, he can change his nature. He can cease to be a creature and begin to become even a child of God. Now, studiousness is related. You could, I wonder if you could guess the virtue to which that is related. Temperance. Temperance because Thomas Aquinas says we have three great passions and urges and inclinations. One is to eat. The other is sex. And the other is for knowing. Everybody's curious, men just as well as women. That's the reason we hate to have secrets kept from us. We were made to know. Now, these three urges can become abnormal. Food can become gluttony, sex can become adultery, and knowing can become crime, pride. Hence the necessity of temperance to prevent us, one, from having too little, and on the other hand, from having too much. If, for example, we have too little, well, then we become lowbrow. Now, a lowbrow, of course, does not develop himself. If we do not develop our muscles, our muscles begin to, to atrophy. And there is in us, there is in the universe, not only an evolution, but there's also a law of devolution. That is to say, we can not only go up, but we can also go back. A white fence does not always remain a white fence. Leave it alone and ceases to be white, it may even become a black fence. Darwin tells the story of a number of pigeons that were brought by a bird fancier to a very high degree of perfection of color. And then he turned them loose on an island, went back and found that in ten years they had all changed into a dull gray slate color. They had degenerated. So it's possible for the mind to degenerate. It has been established statistically, think of this, that 
61% of the adults of the United States during the past year did not read a single book. Do you know how much time the average adult spends on television? He spends three hours and 20 minutes a week on TV. These same adults, 50% of these same adults that spend three hours and 20 minutes before TV, 50% of them had not read a magazine article during the year. 25% of college students had net read, not read a book the year after graduation. something wrong with education when it does not inculcate a desire for learning. So just as there can be lowbrows, so over here you can have <coughs> eyebrows. A highbrow is a person who likes something until he finds out that everybody likes it. His learning always exceeds his knowledge. Now, a highbrow's knowledge is uh, generally due to over-specialization. Rather, his knowledge tends to over-specialization. He concentrates on just one thing and interprets everything in terms of that one specialty. His knowledge is not universal. I heard of a, of a young man who had finished medicine. He went home to his father, was a doctor in a small town, took care of all kinds of diseases. And the uh, young son doctor said to his father, he said, Dad, he said, you know, we learned in medical school that this is an age of specialization. And he said, you get nowhere today unless you specialize in something. And I've decided to specialize in the nose. And the father said, which nostril? <laughs> Darwin confessed to the ill effects of specialization. He said, I've spent my life in one specialty of science. And he said, I'm very sorry to say now that at the end of my days, I've lost all appreciation for poetry and art and good literature, which I enjoyed when I was young and in the university. H.G. Wells once wrote a fantasy on the moon men. He called them the sea lights. And uh, he pictured them all as developing one organ that was in accordance with their specialty. For example, those who just studied music and refused to learn anything else besides music, they were all ears. Glass blowers were nothing but lungs. And chemists had long noses. And scientists were carried around in sedan tubs. They were nothing but, but globs of intellectual jelly. And one of the, one of the uh, ill effects of, uh, of becoming a highbrow, and this is another mark of him, is he has no use for the common people. That's when knowledge begins to spoil you. When you've lost touch with the common man. Horace. The uh, Roman poet was that way. He said, I, I hate the common crowd. 
and I avoid them. Now these are the two extremes. Of studiositas, now let us suppose, suppose now that we concentrate on how to improve the mind by a proper use of the virtue of temperance. There are three suggestions. The first suggestion is, in all reading and in all study, taste. Look at everything you read as you might look at a lollipop. Hold it on a stick. See what flavor it has. Maybe it's not worth reading. Just think, we, we are full of hygiene laws. We have individual cups for drinking and so forth. And, and we're protected. If anything gets on our cranberries, we'll not eat them. <laughs> but garbage for the mind, anything. We'll pour in all the filth that we please. As one publisher said, uh, someone brought him a very good novel. He said, I know. He said, this is a marvelous novel. But this year we're looking for trash. <laughs> so you taste. Now, there are some things that are, once you taste them, you see, well, they're not, they're not worth bothering with. Too much. They're all right as the taste, recreational reading. Take, for example, an exclusive diet of novels and TV. When people just sit glued to a, uh, uh, to a TV uh, drama in which emotions are provoked and evoked, the emotions of love and hate and jealousy and fear and dread and anxiety and so forth, as we turn over the pages of the novel, we become more and more stirred. And as we listen to the Westerner and we see that man with the white hat on, and there are 50,000 bullets are shot through that white hat. All the black hats are knocked everywhere, but that white hat never comes off his head. And you become so full of dread that maybe someday that man's going to lose his white hat. What would happen to the world? And what are all these emotions directed against? Fictitious characters. A book. Paper. Why can't you see that after a while our emotions are like the spring on a screen door? Pulled and pulled so often and after a while it loses all of its resiliency. And then later on in life there come real objects and problems toward which the emotions of love and hate and anger and justice and so forth should be aroused. But they become so jaded, so exhausted, so emasculated by being pulled at artificially that they're no longer aroused. And that is why in the face of social injustices, dishonesties affecting one industry after another and politics, we remain cold. Our emotional life is gone. That's one of the evil effects of too steady a diet. 
And students, when they go to colleges, should only take certain courses. Go in the first day. If the professor does nothing but sit and dictate notes to you, quit the course. Don't bother with him. All that he is is transferring what's written on his notebook to what is written on your notebook without passing through the mind of either. He's just a, a textbook wired for sound. <laughs> then there are certain courses that are not worth following. Statistics of the year. They'll be useless next year. Some courses on sociology. You could get more out of a book in a hammock in an hour than you can out of a course of that kind in six months. Taste them. If you do not like them, throw them aside. Then next, chew. When we get hold of something good and we masticate it in order to take out of it all the flavor that is there. Now this, this chewing means that we are not always just looking at the book. We first of all have to put forth considerable effort. There is no such thing as an easy path to knowledge. Do not believe these advertisements. Learn to speak French in 40 easy hours. Calculus, learned in an afternoon. <laughs> Learn how to play the piano in 10 easy lessons. Buy an electric organ, sit down, play it at once. Just try it sometime. <laughs> so we're looking for everything easy. We do not read books. We've got to get hold of a digest. Everything has to be broken up for us. We're not putting forth any effort. Uh, the other day when I came into the studio, I found a, a cover on a book. Fortunately, it was only a cover, but it very well illustrates the flight from effort today in studying. Do you know what it was called? Brain surgery self-taught. <laughs> so we are not, therefore, always to be looking at the book. We have to get away from it and meditate on it. Uh, what I do with, what I, with my books is when I get a book, I read it through fairly quickly. I, I underline the important passages. That's chewing out the meat. And then I read it over the second and third time. And then I will make in the back an index of my own. So then when I went to refer to those ideas, I have my own index ready. Now, you cannot do that with borrowed books. Anatole France said that uh, the only books he had in his library were those that were borrowed. <laughs> then the third way to improve your mind is to digest certain kinds of books. Now, digest does not mean a summary. When, when there is such a thing as digestion, there is a flow of the food and nutrient value into flesh, into blood, into bones, and into the brain. When, therefore, we digest books, we learn, as it were, from the inside out, not from the outside in, not from the book in this way. We will read the book, then we close it, and we try to rethink 
what we have read. The longer we keep our eyes on that book, the less we will get it into our head. Try to give an example of something. You never understand anything until you can give an example. Think of the people who write speeches. Then when they've written a speech, what will they do? They will sit down and learn that speech by heart. Just think. They'll make a living mind made to the image and likeness of God subservient to a piece of paper. Why, what's written on that paper can be made better by thinking it over and over again. It's often wondered how I can get up here and talk for a half hour and not use an idiot card or a teleprompter. It's really very simple. Just simply get, get ideas into your head. What I do is I will gather together maybe 50 or 60 pages of notes on any subject. Read everything. Put down all of my thoughts. I never looked at those 56 pages again. I began rethinking them. There's a quotation. I may have to go back and look. And then I tear up my summary. Then I do it, rethink it again. Now, I brought over tonight. There is the telecast of tonight. Right there on that yellow paper. Hardly anybody could make anything out of it. There's the gestion. Right there. That's what I'm talking about. See? It's written in flesh and blood. And inside out. Now, I've got pyramid here. The reason I'm not touching on pyramids and on quiz shows is because I don't have time. But I don't get nervous about it, you see. When you got it in your head, you never have to worry. Mother gives birth to a child. She never, never forgets that she did give birth to a child. If you give birth to an idea, it's your own. I remember once asking Cardinal Mercier when I left the University of Louvain in Belgium, I said, I may have to teach someday. What's the best way to teach? He says, tear up your notes at the end of every year. And I did that for 25 years. So it becomes part of you. And then a final and most important idea of all is to begin studying with prayer. Prayer. You have eyes, and I have eyes. But the light is not in our eyes. The light is outside of us. We have the same eyes at night as we have in the day. We cannot see at night because we lack the additional light of the sun. And so, too, for the understanding of many things, we have to appeal to the light that is outside of us, namely the light of God. That is one of the reasons why I have in my house, I've got about 8,000 books. Our house is only 25 feet wide, and so I've got them everywhere. Now, this library here is the simulation of my own study. Well, my desk is here, and books on either side of me. And shelves, and then at the far end is a door, and that door leads to the tabernacle, to the chapel. And I deliberately put my desk here. 
in order that I may get my illumination from the Lord. There's a world of difference between knowledge and wisdom. One can have a lot of knowledge and have no wisdom. You can know without being moral. In order to have wisdom, you have to be good. That's the reason never go to a psychiatrist who's divorced or is not leading a good life. He can't give you any wisdom. He can never help you. And so when divine wisdom came down to this earth, who are the people who came to have their minds improved? Two classes, shepherds, wise men. Shepherds, those who knew, who know they know nothing. Wise men, those who know they do not know everything. Never the man with one book, never the man who thinks that he knows. It's either the very simple or the very learned. And the shepherds found their shepherd, and the wise men found what every student wants, the wisdom of God. The American people are the most generous people on the face of God's earth. And they are constantly asked to give. And they do. But it is fitting that there be an exchange. I do not really ask you to give. I ask you to sacrifice for the poor of the world. And there must be added to that an exchange. I tell you what I will do. For every one of you who makes a sacrifice and sends it to me for the poor of the world, I promise to remember you in prayer one hour a day on my knees for 30 days straight. Thank you. Bye now, and God love you. You are listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me today to listen to a little bit of the wit and wisdom of the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Uh, people ask me all the time, what books should I order of Archbishop Sheen? <laughs> I always say, well, order them in bunches. They're, they're always good. You can never get enough of Archbishop Sheen. And we have a few good friends that have given us discounts to our Radio Maria listeners. Uh, for those who enjoy, uh, again, Sheen's wisdom through the good folks at Sophia Institute Press, and um, they've got nine uh, Sheen titles in their lineup. Uh, you can visit their website at sophiainstitute.com, and uh, you can use the promo code SHEEN25 and receive a 25% discount f of off any of the Sheen books or any of the titles that they carry. And so uh, there are as many, uh, I want to say hundreds and hundreds of books there at Sophia Institute Press and use the promo code SHEEN25 at checkout to get your 25% discount. And our good friends at Tan Books uh, are offering us a 15% discount on any of their books, including some of their Sheen titles. And so you can visit them at tan.com or I should say tanbooks.com, <laughs> but, you know, you can Google that and you'll find them. But, uh, again, hundreds, of, if not thousands of books in their lineup. And, again, the promo code SHEEN uh, to receive the 15% discount. So uh, our good friends are passing on the savings to us Radio Maria listeners. And so, uh, and, and I have lots of books on Amazon.com. I uh, just Google Bishop Sheen today 
and you'll find all the books that I've self-published on Amazon and so uh, there I just kept the price really really low so everyone can afford Sheen so okay there's my three uh, top tip tips today tan books Sophia Institute Press and the good folks at amazon.com so all right and it's just not amazon.com there's amazon.ca there's amazon australia and uh, there's amazon.uk so wherever you're listening you can find some good sheen books on amazon all right we now move to that part of our program where we enjoy sheen's uh, catechism lessons and today the topic is on holy orders and so without further ado may i present to you the venerable sheen as he teaches us the faith. Please enjoy. Peace be to you. And may I tell you a story about a bishop and a priest? Because these stories might be a very fitting introduction to a sacrament that has to do with the government of the church, namely holy orders. This first story I am familiar with because it was told to me by a fellow prisoner of the bishop. This good bishop was put into a communist prison in China and through persecutions and beatings his weight fell to about 90 pounds. Covered with vermin prison sores, wearing a black stocking cap and a black kimono. He was unable to walk by himself. He always had to be supported by two fellow Chinese prisoners. Providentially, however, he was the only one in prison that was ever given bread and wine. Communists did not know why they gave it to him. But at any rate, he had it. If they knew that he was going to read Mass with the bread and wine, they certainly would never have given it to him. And this person in prison with him told me that no Mass in a Gothic cathedral, with all the pomp and splendor of liturgy, could ever equal the beauty of that mass that was said by the bishop as he leaned against the prison wall with the tin tray before him, moving his fingers, saying over the bread, this is my body, and over the wine, This is my blood. Then secretly afterwards, passing out communion to those who shared his faith. He was put in a death march. Later on, he perished. And a communist colonel who was in charge of the march put a sack around his neck weighed about 30 pounds. It was so tied that as he marched, the rope would gradually tighten, the sack would become heavier, and the bishop would eventually be choked to death. As the march began, 
this fellow prisoner told me that he broke ranks and went up to the communist colonel and shouted at him, Don't do that! Look at the man! It was a kind of an H.A. homo. The communist colonel looked at him as if for the first time in his life he really saw suffering. And then he said to the one who interrupted him, Get back in line, you dog. The death march began. And this friend of mine who told me this narrative said that he tried to peer through the marching lines of the prisoners to see if he could catch a sight of the bishop supported by two fellow Chinese prisoners. After about a mile he saw him. The bishop was still standing. But the sack was not on his back. The sack was on the back of the communist colonel. I asked, what happened? He said the communist colonel put it on his own back. And why? He said, I think he was edified by the patience and resignation of the good bishop. In any case, the communist was arrested for having done that service. The last we heard of him was that he was in prison. The other story is about a priest. The communist told this priest to strip himself. He stripped himself to a point where he had left only his shoes and stockings. They started beating him about the head and the body with rods. He leaned over and began taking off his shoes and stockings. And they said, leave them on. Why do you want to take them off? He said, because I want to die like our Lord. Where do bishops and priests come from? They come from a sacrament will be recalled that there are two social sacraments, matrimony and holy orders. In the natural order, man and woman propagate the human species. God has elevated this to a sacrament of matrimony. In the natural order, too, there must be government. In the divine supernatural order, in the mystical body of Christ, there must be government. And the sacrament of government of the mystical body is holy orders. In this government, there are degrees, there's order, there's hierarchy. And the division of these orders is principally three. Deaconship, priesthood, and episcopacy. 
Our blessed Lord, therefore, at the night of the Last Supper, and all during his public life as a matter of fact, chose human instruments to mediate between himself and the world. The scripture says, they are to be the ministers and dispensers of the mysteries of God. And again in the epistle of the Hebrews we read, the purpose for which any high priest is chosen from among his fellow men and made a representative of men in their dealings with God is to offer gifts and sacrifices in expiation for their sins. But inasmuch as we are dispensers of the great mysteries of God, why did he not choose angels? Well, because sympathy, compassion, and suffering together with one who has already suffered would be lacking to an angel. An angel would not have that common denominator. Is not this the whole principle of the Incarnation? Did not our Lord come down, take upon himself our human nature, become a kind of a slave, and the scripture said, in order that he might have compassion on us, share our woes, share our wounds. No one from that point on could never say that God does not know what it is to be human. Even the very one thing that was lacking in his nature, namely the quality of femininity, he compensated for by calling Mary to suffer alongside of him, or rather at the foot of his cross in his passion. So our Lord, therefore, was able to lay hold of us simply because he shared something in common with us. That is why God chose us, weak creatures. So God chose us poor weak creatures, therefore, as Cardinal Newman has put it, for the sake of those with whom we deal. He has sent forth for the ministry of reconciliation, not angels, but men. He has sent forth your brethren to you, not beings of some unknown nature and some strange blood, but of your own bone, of your own flesh, to preach to you. It is your brethren that he has appointed, no one else, sons of Adam, sons of your nature, the same by nature, differing only in grace and in power. Men like you, exposed to temptations, to the same temptations, to the same warfare within and without, with the same three deadly enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, with the same human, the same wayward heart, differing only as the power of God has changed and rules it. So it is, therefore, we are not angels from heaven to speak to you, but men whom grace and grace alone 
has made to differ from you. What a strange anomaly this is. All is perfect, all is heavenly, all is glorious in the dispensation which Christ has vouchsafed to us except the persons of his ministers, his priests. He dwells on our altar, the most holy, the most high. The angels fall down before him. And yet the priests so set apart, so consecrated, they with their girdle of celibacy and their maniple of sorrow are sons of Adam, sons of sinners of a fallen nature, as they have not put off, though it is renewed through grace. Every priest is a kind of a mediator between God and man bringing God to man and man to God. This is the way he continues the priesthood of our blessed Lord. Our Lord was not a priest because he was eternally begotten by the Father. Our Lord was a priest because he had a human nature which he could offer up for our salvation. And so we too continuing that priesthood or something like Jacob's ladder. It reaches up to the heavens, and yet at the same time, it is placed on the earth. Therefore, every priest is a kind of another Christ, having vertical relations to Christ in heaven and horizontal relations to men on earth. First, a word about bishops. Bishops are the successors of the apostles. When one reads sacred scripture, one finds our blessed Lord giving them many powers. Our Lord, for example, said that like him, they are the light of the world. Like him, they are the shepherds of Christian people. Like him, they are the door through which the flock will enter into the holy city. A bishop is consecrated not just primarily for a diocese. He is consecrated primarily for the world. Because our Lord said to his apostles, Go ye into the world. It is only for jurisdictional reasons that a bishop has a diocese. But his primary responsibility is the world itself. Therefore, the missions of the church are not foundlings on the doorsteps of a chancery office. All peoples of the world weigh upon his heart. What would you think, for example, of a person that was so very much concerned with his own heart that he tied a tourniquet around his arms and also around his legs? And if he were asked the reason for doing so, he might say, Well, I find that my blood is going out to the extremities of my body. It is rather wasting its strength. And therefore, since I want to preserve my strength, I'm going to keep all the blood in my heart and near it. After a while, the heart would not function. So too, if a bishop cut himself off, 
from the extremities of the mystical body of Christ from Africa and Asia and Latin America, speaking here of the Bishop of the United States. By his own diocese, his own episcopacy would suffer. The right and left side of the heart have no communion directly with one another. They have communion only because the blood passes through one side of the heart, traverses the entire body, and then comes up to the other side. So too, every bishop, every diocese, as in every parish, has communion with itself only in as much as it has communion with the entire mystical body of Christ. Whence comes this call to the priesthood and to holy orders? Sacred Scripture tells us that we must be called by God as Aaron was. No one takes this office unto himself. As we said before, God does not always choose the best. St. Paul says, not many wise, not many noble. Because the power is actually not in us, the power is in Christ. That's why he can choose. and That is why he calls weak vessels frail earthenware to be the bearers of his treasure. Now this vocation that comes to us is rather silent for the most part. God never comes down and shakes our bed and says to us, come on, get up, I want you to be a priest. It is rather a long, persistent calling. I can never remember a moment in my own life, for example, when I did not want to be a priest. That was the prayer of my first communion, that I would be a priest. But all the time that I was studying for it, I always felt very unworthy of it, and I feel more unworthy now. After all, the more we bring a painting to the sunlight, the more the imperfections are revealed. And the closer we look at ourselves in the light of the great high priest whom we are to represent, the more foul we see ourselves. We see the treasures that God has put into our hands and the very little interest that we have drawn. Fright. Each and every one of us is something like Simon Peter. Remember, Simon was the name that he had from his family. Peter was the name that our blessed Lord gave him. So in each and every one of us priests, there is this double nature. There is the Simon nature, that nature that we derive from our parents. Our poor, weak human body and mind and will. This is what God uses. Then on the other hand, there is this Peter nature. The call from God. The infusion of divine powers to forgive sins. To be a priest to renew the sacrifice of Calvary. 
And all the while, we feel our great powers, we feel our great weaknesses. We hope that people realize that the Simon nature in us must not blind them to the Peter power. It is interesting also to recall how St. Peter at the end of his life changed and became more humble. In the first epistle that he wrote, just a few years before his death, he began his epistle by calling himself Peter, Apostle of Jesus Christ. The last epistle, written very shortly before his death, began Simon Peter, Servant and Apostle of Jesus Christ. See how at the end of his life he came back to his poor, weak, Simon nature and united in both his priesthood and his episcopacy, the union of the human and the divine, and ended by calling himself a servant. That's what we are. Servants of our Lord. Savior Jesus Christ. Our service is an arduous one. It involves labor not only in the field during the daytime, but also serving at night. There is no such thing as saying at the end of a day, Well, I've done my duty for today. Rather, our Lord said, we have to call ourselves unprofitable servants. As a matter of fact, the less there is of self-satisfaction in our lives, the more zeal there is in his service. If we count the converts that we have made, we're very likely to begin by thinking that we made them instead of our Lord himself. We cannot say, I built three rectories, now the bishop ought to make me a monsignor. He still has to keep in his mind that he is an unprofitable servant. Labor union rules are not sufficient for us. We belong to a different union. Where love, not ours, is the standard. When we think of all that our Lord has done for us, we really can never do enough. The word enough does not exist in love's vocabulary. It's very much like telling a mother who spent all night alongside of the bed of her sick child that she has done enough. Oh, yes, we know we are called the ambassadors of Christ, but we are also to be the victims of Christ. We know very well that our blessed Lord refused to distinguish between work and extra work between being on duty and standing by, between walking one mile and another mile, between giving our coat and giving our cloak. No airs of self-complacency are divinely permitted. No self-pity, no pluming ourselves on our administrative talent. We are worthless servants and we have done our best. To our dear Lord alone belongs the merit 
and the glory of our services. To us, to us belongs nothing but the gratitude and humidity of being pardoned rebels. To sum it all up on the one hand, we are the ambassadors of Christ. We are the channels of his power. And our principal and great act, of course, is Holy Mass. When we read the Mass, we, as it were, go to the hill of Calvary and with a giant hand take the cross with our blessed Lord upon it, lift it out of that locale, and then plant it down in Paris and Cairo and Tokyo, and in the poorest mission of the world. This is our work, to extend Christ's forgiveness of our sins, to give his blessing with our poor hands, and to see ourselves every day we mount the altar, wearing our chasuble, as hanging on to that chasuble, the millions and millions of souls in the world who know not Christ himself. When we take a host into our hand, we have to see our fingers gnarled from slavery in the salt mines of Siberia. We have to see our feet as bleeding feet of refugees, tramping westward towards barbed wire beyond which lies freedom. When we look at the candles, we are to think of the glow of the blast furnaces tended by gaunt men who have had their very lives squeezed out of them by those who deny economic justice. When our eyes look at the host, we have to see them as wet with the tears of the widow and the suffering of the orphan and the stole that is about our shoulders. Like the stole of the Old Testament priest, we see bearing the stones of the twelve tribes. We see them as living stones, the burden of all of the churches and the people of the world. So we drag the whole of humanity to the altar, and there we join heaven and earth together. We merge our hands into Christ's hands, for he lives on to make intercession for us. We say with Peter, I will follow thee wherever thou goest, and yet... We do not. We see sunlit meadows. And then there comes alongside of those meadows our desolation, our weariness, and our loneliness. We feel tired, and our feet ache, and our bodies rebel, and our spirits waver. There are times that we want to sit down and pluck flowers admire the view. We are tempted to lose patience with our Lord's calm, slow, and never faltering step. When we stumble, we are tempted to lie where we have fallen, complaining that we cannot go on any further. We tell ourselves that we were not meant to be saints. We know that we are. Pray for us.
You are listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me for this week's edition of Bishop Sheen Presents. As I mentioned earlier to you, our good friends at Sophia Institute Press are offering a 25% discount on all of their books when you use the promo code SHEEN25 upon checkout. Their website is sophiainstitute.com. Com, and our good friends at Tan Books are offering a 15% discount on all of their books to our Radio Maria friends, and their promo code is SHEEN, just the word SHEEN, uh, when you check out. And of course, a great selection of SHEEN books on Amazon uh, through our good friends at Bishop SHEEN today. And speaking of Bishop Sheen Today, there is their website of bishopsheentoday.com, and there you'll find hundreds of videos, audio recordings, and books, all at a click of a mouse. And so, again, everything Fulton Sheen. Look forward to seeing you again next week, and until that time, may the good Lord continue to bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace. God love you.